Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning, online and in the Y. How fun is this? Great to be together as a church family this morning. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. Well, I didn't answer the question Katie asked, but if you ever wonder who I'm rooting for in the Super Bowl, I have the t-shirt on. I always and only root for Davidson. Go Cats. We do need to say a quick thank you. If you're one of the many people, I, mean, I do mean many people, who have joined our church family during the pandemic, then you would not be aware. But before the pandemic, uh, this is how we traditionally set up our worship. We would have this uh, small trusting system here, and that allowed us to set the uh, worship, the congregation, a little more up in a round. Well, uh, with the guidelines for COVID-19 still in place, we can't fill the gym up quite like we would have before the pandemic. But by God's grace in 2021, as the vaccine is more widely distributed, we anticipate those guidelines will slowly be scaled back. And as that does happen, we'll be able to fill in uh, some chairs, allow more people to be in person. We have unlimited capacity online, or at least that's what we've been told by the people online. Uh, for free, they say. But, uh, but just for you to be aware, uh, our tech team has spent the better part of this and a few weekends getting us to the place where we could move back to the trusting system. So will you join me in thanking this small army of people? For making this a reality. Thank you very much. If this is your first time to get to worship in the round, here it is. Here's where the, the, the magic happens. But if we can't do it, we'll go out in the field or we'll be online. Well, we, we got this thing. We didn't know how versatile we were a year ago. We didn't know. Well, I want to tell you, uh, start off the sermon this morning with a God story. God's story is a story of God working in a person's life or the life of a group of people. This story is a little bit different because this God story is from our elders. We're an elder-led church. That means that there's not just any one person in charge of the church, that there's a group of people, spiritually mature, gifted in leadership. That looks different for different people, but gifted in leadership who oversee the health, the vitality, guard the welfare of the church. And so I love our elders. I'm encouraged by our elders. I'm energized by our elders. I'm energized by our elder meetings, believe it or not. Well, uh, at the end of last year, as you may be aware, we became the proud owners of property on South Main Street in Davidson. What you may not be aware of is that very same day that we closed, our elders began to sense God sort of stirring or, or moving in their uh, thoughts, their mind, their conscience, that they needed to act to keep us on good footing, to prepare their hearts and to prepare our hearts for what it meant to uh, own this piece of property. And so the day after we closed on the property, the elders actually met on the property to do something. They acted. And so I'm going to ask one of our elders, Meredith McDaniel, to come and share a little bit about this God's story, how the elders felt prompted, and, and kind of the actions they took from there. Now, Meredith is one of our newest elders, but this is not hazing. She volunteered to do this. So will you join me in welcoming Meredith McDaniel? Meredith McDaniel. 
Hold on. Can you hear me now? Yes. Um, it feels like such a gift to be up here um, on behalf of the elders to get to share this story that really is all of our story with you. Um, my heart feels like it's still exploding from being in here all together in the round again and getting to sing together. So here we go. Over nearly a decade, our church has been scattering seeds all around the town of Davidson in our backyard and beyond. Some have floated across the lake up and down I-77, and even flown across fields, eventually landing in the dirt around our neighborhoods, schools, and places of business. These seeds have slowly started to sprout over time, and we have watched some beautiful stories bloom in the process. Years ago, we started praying for a place to put down roots, a place to call our own, where we could more effectively gather together for generations ahead. We longed collectively to locate land within walking distance to Davidson College so that students who were far away from friends and family could find a home away from home that was easy to access. We started simply by looking up and looking around as we tend to do around here. It wasn't long before we realized the scarcity of green space to buy and build here in Davidson. All the while, using our common mission to love God and love others while keeping Christ as the center, our focus, the dreams started to unfold. Conversations happened, meetings were held, especially by this birthday boy over here, Mr. Bill Worsley, and hope was cultivated deep within our hearts. Some doors opened only to be closed soon after. Desire and disappointment can be kindreds when hunting for a needle in a haystack. Still, when we are keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and our hands open to his best, abundance flows. Does it always look like we might expect? Does it always happen in our time? Rarely. A few years ago, we discovered the option of purchasing land on 480 South Main Street in Davidson. There were various roadblocks that stood in the way that made our desire to purchase the land feel very lofty and out of reach. Yet this is when we took a leap of faith as a community and began our rooted invitation, where many of you started to sacrificially and generously join us in funding this adventure. With the confidence to make an offer, we first had to confirm that the land could indeed be rezoned to permit a church to be built on this hill on the south end of town. History was made that, like, that night, last fall, when the town board unanimously voted in favor of the plot to be re rezoned for our church to be built. This was a really big deal. Stunned, yet not surprised, we all celebrated with joy, and the purchase of our new church home soon followed. We became landowners in Davidson. You might have seen the sign with the balloons. Towards the end of 2020, on a chilly evening, as our maker painted the sky in neon hues, our elders gathered in a circle on the hill, led by TJ, to thank him for this land we thought we might call our own. But in knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from above, we knew as a body of believers that this land was indeed not our own. God has abundantly provided and continues to provide immeasurably more than any of us could have ever imagined. He knows my story and he knows your story and the story that our body is becoming better than we do. He has the aerial view. So that night, while we gazed up at the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows, 
we realized the gift that he gave us as a church, and we gave it back into the hands of the one who holds us all and the whole wide world, who we pray will guide us for generations and generations to come. And we, as we sing often, let us not forget that God's always been faithful. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Meredith. Thank you, Meredith. As I was, I was one of the folks who was standing on the hill as we were praying, and I was just yet again reminded, encouraged how much I love and and thankful for our elders, who uh, it's it's responded to God's prompting to make sure that as wonderful as this gift was, that it didn't become a replacement for God in our minds and in our and in our hearts. And so you'll often hear me say uh, as a joke, we were landowners in Davidson for one day. We bought the land and then the next night we met up there and prayed and dedicated the land back to God and his purposes. So we were landowners in Davidson for one day. Now we are land stewards in Davidson. We are in charge of what God has entrusted to us, but it's still his for his purposes. I was thankful. You'll notice in the sermon today, our elders had already heard of this passage in the Bible, and they acted on it. It's one thing to know something. It's a different thing to act on it. So we'll, uh, we'll look, at that, look at that today. We're preaching through the big picture of the Bible, a series of sermons we're calling The Story, that from the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world, and He is calling you, calling me to come and find our place in it. We want to make the Bible seem not so big, not so intimidating, and so we have resources there at that fine web address where you can find a reading plan or a kid's, a family reading plan. There are videos you can watch, no shame in in just watching the videos, but plenty of ways for you and me to take a next step in learning more about what the Scripture is and, and what the major messages of it are. So far, we have watched God create the world full of beauty and order. We have watched humanity, in fact, all of creation, be lured into rebelling against God. We have seen the painful consequences of that rebellion again and again, and now God is starting to pick up some of the broken pieces to make a work of art. So this week, we check back in on God's redemptive plan. We are going to see how humans always find a way to mess things up. And yet, God is committed to never giving up on us. We're going to turn to one of the most alarming passages of the whole Bible, Genesis chapter 22, what Ryland read for us earlier. As he was reading that, you might have realized this is not a feel-good sermon. This is not going to be a feel-good sermon. But it's still an important sermon because God does do surgery, very precise surgery in our hearts as we follow him. So if you were not here last week, you would not remember Abraham and Sarah, but if you were here last week, you'll remember Abraham and Sarah. The whole sermon is available online. What is so great about Abraham and Sarah? What's so great about Abraham? Do you remember? Was it his smile, his dry sense of humor, his skinny jeans? What was so great about Abraham? Abraham trusted God, trusted God to love him, to guide him, and to provide for him. Genesis 12, 1 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. 
So God invites Abraham and Sarah, just like he invites you and me, into his mission in the world, into what he's doing in this world. Abraham was supposed to go set out for a place that God would show him. You'll notice there's not many details in that. Where exactly are we going? How many rest stops will there be along the way? Will there be Taco Bells at the rest stops? Doesn't get very many details. All Abraham gets from God is, go, trust me, I'll show you where you're supposed to be. And what does Abraham do? He and his wife go. He and Sarah trust God. And with God leading them, they know that they'll have the love that they need, the guidance they'll need, the provision that they'll need. And then God takes it a step further, and God enters into a covenant with Abraham and with Sarah. Again, this is a summary of last week, Genesis 17:7. God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting promise, an everlasting commitment. God promises, in fact, to redeem the whole world through Abraham and Sarah, that this is God's eternal promise. One problem, Abraham and Sarah have no children, and they are old. In fact, when God made this covenant with them, they laughed at God. Now, these are the people that God has said he's going to redeem the whole world through, and here they are, laughing at God. Kind of makes you feel like God could use you and me too, right? <laughs> they laughed at God. Abraham and Sarah need a child. In fact, in a patriarchal society, they need a son. And God promised to give them a son, that in fact, he would change the whole world through their son. This is the foretelling of Jesus the Christ, because Jesus the Christ is actually born from the lineage of Abraham and Sarah. Jesus is, this is going to take us a while to get there, but Jesus is at the center of God's plan, and we'll watch that unfold just as he desires to be at the center of your life. I pray we get to watch that unfold. So Abraham and Sarah wait for decades, and their hoped-for son does not come. And so Abraham decides to have a son through his servant named Hagar, and they named this son Ishmael. That's not God's promise. God's promise was that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. And with some divine intervention, they do. They have a son, and they name their miracle son Isaac, which means laughter. Laughter. Because they laughed at God when he made the covenant, and then when God returned that favor, they named their son Isaac. They laughed with joy. So they named their son Isaac because they laugh with joy, but then not long after that, Abraham and Sarah don't like the way Hagar and Ishmael are treating Isaac. Could this ever happen in families? Abraham and Sarah don't like the way that Hagar and Ishmael are treating Isaac, and so they send Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert to fend for themselves. And this is when we realize that Isaac is exactly what Abraham and Sarah wanted, and he is the cause of great destruction in their lives. He is exactly what Abraham and Sarah wanted, and he is the cause of great destruction in their lives. He caused these new parents to laugh with joy, 
And then to send an exploited woman and her son, her young son, off to fend for themselves. How can this be? How can one child, one thing, be the source of such great joy and such great pain? Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is that we get what we've always wanted. Sometimes the worst thing that can happen to us is that we get what we've always wanted. That's the danger we have to deal with this morning. Sometimes we get what we've always wanted. That God gives us what He's promised us, or that God gives us what we've prayed for. Sometimes we get what we've always wanted. Like a career, or an achievement, or social standing, or money, a certain amount of money, a romantic relationship, peer approval, a, a skill, or security, or beauty, or brains, a political candidate who wins, a social cause that's achieved. Maybe it could be success in Christian ministry, or, or land, or a child. For Abraham and Sarah, that's what it was. It was their son Isaac. And sometimes when we get what we've always wanted, we start to look to that thing or that person to give us what only God can give us, to give us forgiveness, purpose, our hope, everlasting, unconditional love. The African Bishop Augustine in the 400s, he called this the disordered loves. Meaning, it's not that we love the wrong things, although sometimes we do, but more often than not, we love the right things in the wrong order. And so we elevate a good thing into being the most important thing, and that never works. We look to a spouse or a child or an opportunity or a degree or recognition or net worth. We look to something other than God to give us what only God can give us. A more modern-day pastor, more modern than the 400s, a more modern-day pastor, Timothy Keller, calls these counterfeit gods. When we put someone or something other than God into the central place in our lives, he calls them counterfeit gods. Whatever you call them, disordered loves, counterfeit gods, the Bible calls it idolatry. Idolatry. An idol is anything or anyone that is more important to us than God. Anything or anyone that we expect to give us what only God can give us. God desires to be the, the source of our meaning, to be the source of our forgiveness, to be the source of our purpose, to be the basis, a deep, unshakable basis for your hope, for your security. But how often we turn to other things to give us purpose that deep sense of security and hope and meaning. These become our idols. They become counterfeit gods. And how does God deal with our disordered loves? How does God deal with the counterfeit gods in our lives, with our idols? Remember that, that God has a covenant that if you're a follower of Jesus or today or in the future, you become a follower of Jesus. God has a covenant with you. You are part of this covenant, this everlasting promise of God. How does God's promise, God's commitment to you look like in those hard moments? What does God's promise, his commitment look like in hard moments? Because for Abraham, even before Isaac had been born, the promise of him had started to take a central place in Abraham's life. Even God had to start taking a back seat to Isaac. 
Abraham finally got what he'd always wanted, and it came at a very high price. This led to maybe the most difficult moment of Abraham's life when he realized that God would not play second fiddle to Isaac. It starts this way. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. You don't need me to clarify why I called this one of the most alarming passages in the Bible, do you? The promise is threatened. God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah depends upon them having a child, a child to be their descendant. And by this point in their lives, they're now very, very old. Like they, they have both doses of the vaccine at this point. If you have both doses of the vaccine, they're older than you are. They were at the front of the line the first day it was open. This is who they called, Abraham and Sarah. And now God is telling them to sacrifice their son Isaac? The passage begins by saying God tested Abraham. The implication being God is not going to make Abraham kill Isaac, that there's something else going on here. Now, some religious cults in that day and time did require uh, child sacrifice as part of religious rituals. And so part of the point of this passage is that God is different than those false gods that demand that kind of an awful thing. God is the God of mercy. God is the God of grace. But don't be confused when we ask the God of mercy and the God of grace to play second fiddle to our counterfeit gods. He does not say, oh, shucks, I guess I can do that for you. That's not how he responds. He responds by setting up an alarming moment in which we have to make a decision. Abraham had to make a decision. He either has to say, I trust you, God, and start walking to the mountains with Isaac, or he has to say, Isaac is more important to me than you, God, and not walk to the mountains. In a terrifying moment, God is making him choose who is more important to him, God or Isaac. And that's not to say there's anything wrong with Isaac. Isaac's a great guy, I'm sure. I mean, he's got a nice smile, a dry sense of humor, skinny jeans. He takes after his father. He's a great guy. But Abraham took God's gift and tried to make it a god. And the once good thing is now crumbling under the weight of being the ultimate thing. So where is Abraham supposed to sacrifice Isaac? I think this is the key to understanding the passage. Where is Abraham supposed to sacrifice Isaac? On some mountain. Just trust me, I'll show you. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 12:1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. So in Genesis chapter 12, the very beginning of God's relationship with Abraham, where does God tell Abraham to go? Some land, just trust me, I'll show you. And now in Genesis 22, at this most defining moment of God's relationship with Abraham, where does he tell him to sacrifice Isaac? On some mountain, just trust me, I'll show you. 
Abraham's life had been built around trusting God. But he got sidetracked. He got wrapped up in worshiping his son Isaac. And so God broke into that fog, that dream, that laughing gas on his soul with a, with a jolt of reality. Sacrifice your son. Where? On a mountain. Just trust me, I'll show you. God is calling Abraham back into a life primarily built around trusting him. And this will require demoting Isaac out of the central place in Abraham's life. Isaac has to be demoted from being a counterfeit God back to just being a beloved son. And at that point, God can return to the central place in Abraham's life. But Abraham's heart has gotten so wrapped up in his son Isaac, the fog of the counterfeit God is so thick, God has to give him this horrible ultimatum. But he gives it to him in language that reminds him that God has been faithful in the past. God has been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the present. He will be faithful in the future. God is trustworthy. Abraham, you trusted me when I took you to some unknown land. Trust me when I take you to some unknown mountain. So what does Abraham do? Verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So they gather up what they need for the sacrifice. He gathers up Isaac. They start to walk into the mountains. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. The two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The wood and fire are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Okay, so this is the moment you realize Isaac is not the brightest crayon in the shed. Because they've been walking for a while now, and now Isaac starts to survey the scene. We have everything we need for the sacrifice except the sacrifice. Hey, pops, where's the sacrifice? I can carry this wood a little while longer, but at some point the sacrifice needs to carry it. Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. This, my friends, is the moment you know the fog has lifted. That God is back at the center of Abraham's life. That Abraham is living primarily out of a trust that God will love him, God will guide him, God will provide for him. Abraham still loves Isaac deeply, but Isaac has been demoted, demoted back to the proper place in Abraham's life, which is the role of beloved son. As pain often does, pain brought Abraham back to reality. Abraham and Isaac were walking up the mountain, not knowing what was going to happen. But Abraham is trusting God, trusting God's character, trusting that God's going to do what's best. And Abraham did not kill Isaac up in those mountains, although he did put him on the altar. But when Isaac was on the altar, God sent an angel, a messenger, to divert Abraham's attention. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Abraham did not kill Isaac during their walk in the mountains, 
But Abraham did sacrifice Isaac during their walk in the mountains. I want to make this distinction. He did not kill Isaac during their walk in the mountains, but he did sacrifice Isaac during their walk in the mountains. And what I mean by that is that he had to face the terrifying choice that if it came down to it, he would choose God over his son. And he gave up a life centered on his son in order to live a life centered on God. And that is a sacrifice because it's a letting go. It's a giving over. Now, thanks to God's grace, the sacrifice did not involve bloodshed. It involved a demotion in Abraham's heart. Isaac received a much-needed demotion. Have you ever needed a much-needed demotion? He received a much-needed demotion from being the counterfeit God back to being the beloved son. And that demotion was good for Isaac. And it was good for Abraham. If it had happened a little bit earlier, it would have been good for Ishmael and Hagar as well. But Genesis tells us that God in his grace took care of Hagar and Ishmael as they had to fend for themselves in the desert. That even the bad consequences of Abraham and Sarah's counterfeit God, God took care of that. It makes me wonder if some of the consequences of our counterfeit gods may be out of our hands, but are not out of God's hands. At the end of the children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I've learned is not actually just a children's book, like there's deeper meaning in it, apparently. That's cool. At the end of this children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it is said of the lion in the book, who's the figure for Christ, the Christ figure, it is said of that lion Aslan, he's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. If you had to attach that phrase to a verse, a chapter of the Bible, I would pick Genesis chapter 22. He's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. How does God deal with our disordered loves, with our counterfeit gods, with our idols? In what may be the scariest moment of our lives, God calls us to put them up on the altar. To recognize that the good things in our lives really come from God. They belong to God. They came from God's hands. They will return to God's hands. And that you and I are the temporary caretakers of what really belongs to God. And when we see ourselves as the temporary caretakers of what really belongs to God, we find ourselves not trying to love created things too much or too little, but just right. This is not a story about Abraham not loving Isaac. This is is a passage about Abraham learning this disordered love, to love the right things in the right order. Thousands of years later, God's Son, His only Son, whom He loves, Jesus the Christ, carried a wooden cross up into these very same mountains. There on that cross, He died to forgive a world that forgot God just as soon as we got what we always wanted. 
Jesus is described in the Bible as the once for all sacrifice, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Hebrews 10.10 says, by God's will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now do you see a lot of small print under that phrase, once for all? Like, a, yeah, it says that, but then we got a bunch of, like, any, you know, if you did this thing on the March 13th, you know, at the th- 3 in the afternoon, the once for all sacrifice. The point being, you and I can be made holy because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We, we can be set apart as God's children because of Jesus. We can be reconciled to the God of grace and mercy because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. As grateful as Isaac must have been for that ram in the thicket, I am all the more grateful for Jesus. As much as, as, much as Isaac must have asked himself, where would I be if it had not been for that ram? I ask myself all the time, where would I be if it had not been for Jesus? To demote the counterfeit gods in our lives, we need to know how deeply God loves us, how sacrificially God loves us, that God wants to guide us. God wants to guide you. God wants to provide for exactly what you need. God reaches out His hand to you and to me. He wants to live in a relationship with you. He wants you to live your life in a relationship with Him. You can be reconciled to Him, not on your own power, but because of Jesus, who is not tame, but He is good. The question I would ask you to reflect on as I wrap up would be this. What is or most threatens to be the Isaac in your life? What is or most threatens to be the Isaac in your life? Most likely a good thing that you and I are tempted to make into God. Are we we willing to trust that God loves us and will give us what we need in a more lasting way than Isaac will. If we do, as Abraham did, I think what we'll find is that we come to love and enjoy Isaac more, not less. We will not ask Isaac to bear the weight of being God. The covenant was threatened, but not by God, by disordered love. But here's what we see again and again. Even as we bring our disordered loves to God, our counterfeit gods to God, our idols to God, again and again and again and again, God's promise is real. God's commitment is real. His covenant is real. His promise of commitment is real. It was real to Abraham. It was real to Sarah. It is real to you. It is real to me. And it is not built upon our ability to be perfect. It is built upon His ability to welcome in people through the once for all sacrifice. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God or to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. 
Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you for each person in our church family, past, present, future. You have made each of us. You've knit us together. Whatever we may be called by those around us or those of our past, you call us your own. You call us loved and lovable. Lord, forgive us for the ways we can make anything into a counterfeit God. Forgive us for the ways that we take the Isaacs in our life and try to make them God, to make them you. The ways that our minds and our hearts seem to look everywhere for meaning and purpose, except with you, the author of meaning and purpose. Lord, I pray for each of us that we will look to you to give us the courage to demote our Isaacs back to their rightful place so that you can be at the center of our lives. Lord, may we not depend on our own strength in this. Give us a deep confidence of the grace that you have shown us through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. May we know there is room for us in this covenant, this promise, because of His sacrificial love. We pray all this in His name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand. Let's worship together.